Welcome to How Not to Die, a Diagnostic Detectives Network conversation. Here, leading doctors share with you a lifetime of wisdom and knowledge. I am Dr. Anton Tidov, founder of Diagnostic Detectives Network. To learn more, visit us at diagnosticdetectives.com. We live in precision medicine era. If you want the best outcome, you can no longer treat your physician like a plumber. Fix the leak, but spare me the details. You must learn to navigate the complexity of modern medicine. Our mission is to help you do that. This episode is sponsored by no one. We do not accept any advertisements, sponsorships, endorsements, or affiliations. We stay free from conflicts of interest so common in medicine today. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for any medical decisions. Let's proceed. Hello from New York. We are very excited to bring you today a conversation with a real rock star of lung medicine, pulmonology, Dr. Tobias Welte. Professor Welte is a past president of the European Respiratory Society, and he is one of the world's leading experts in treating lung diseases in general and lung infections in intensive care units in particular. So Professor Welte is a perfect expert for this time. We will discuss coronavirus vaccines, and we will hopefully answer some of the questions about COVID-19 vaccines that you have on your mind. Professor Welte, hello, and welcome to Diagnostic Detectives Network Expert Conversations. Yeah, welcome. My greetings to the U.S. So I think there is a picture of New York in uh, behind you. So I, I missed to be in the States. Now I have not been there for about 10 months, so would be happy to come back. It is true, you'll be most welcome to New York. It misses all the people from around the world, that's for sure. And, you know, it's a gray, gray morning today in New York right here. Let me first briefly, it is, it is slightly above freezing point. So in, in Celsius is like, you know, three, four, but it goes back and forth. The climate change is real. Yeah, that's the same in Germany. So, but we, we, we had a lot of snow in the mountains during the last days. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, I hope the snow stays, but then again, all the ski lifts are staying too, unfortunately. Yeah, that's COVID-19. Let me first briefly review your illustrious career in respiratory medicine and infectious disease. And um, I will start off uh, from your own words uh, that you got interested in respiratory medicine for very personal reasons. Uh, you mentioned that when you were a child, you grew up with your grandparents and they both died of lung conditions. So you said in one of the interviews that you, lung conditions were always on your mind. In very early in your medical career, you were focused on pulmonary medicine. And eventually, Dr. Tobias Welter became professor of pulmonary medicine and director of the Department of Pulmonary and Infectious Diseases at Hanover University uh, School of Medicine in Hanover, Germany. He also received uh, his doctorate in respiratory medicine from Hanover University. And previously, Professor Welter held the position of Professor of Pneumology and Intensive Care Medicine at the University of Magdeburg in Germany. 
Professor Welte is a past president of the European Respiratory Society and the German Society of Pneumology. He is a vice president of German Society of Sepsis, and sepsis is a life-threatening uh, blood infection with very high death rates. Uh, Dr. Tobias Welte was also a president of the German Society of Internal Intensive Care. He serves on various executive boards, including uh, executive board of the German Society of Clinical Care. And Professor Welte also is a board member of German Center for Lung Research, internal advisory board member for the German Center for Infectious Disease Research, and various panels, including, very importantly, uh, he's a chairman of Community Acquired Pneumonia Foundation, and Community Acquired Pneumonia is a huge, huge problem with morbidity and mortality around the world. So, Professor Welter leads a multi-center research group focused on epidemiology, on diagnosis and management of respiratory conditions. Uh, he published around 800 papers in peer-reviewed international medical journals around the world and contributed to chapters in over 150 books. Professor Welter, it's a real honor to have you here, and I hope we're going to have a very interesting conversation and very pertinent conversation to Times Today. Thank you very much for this kind introduction. It's a, a great pleasure to be here and to discuss the current problems with regard to COVID-19 with you. And perhaps we can start off uh, with vaccines against COVID-19. They have arrived, yet many people are hesitant to be vaccinated. And what kind of questions about COVID-19 and vaccination in particular do you hear most often from your patients? Uh, perhaps you could discuss the most relevant questions about coronavirus vaccines uh, that you are being asked. Well, let, let me start with the three main questions which come from patients. That is, is it effective? Are there side effects? And very important, how long is it effective? And these three questions are not easy to answer. And the reason for this is the development of uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccines had been the quickest development ever. So starting in spring and being in phase three clinical studies in autumn, this is a tremendous uh, development in the this circumstance, if you have in mind that normally vaccine development lasts four, five or more years. With this in mind, the first clinical trials had been started in autumn and the results we have now and the results which were responsible for the emergency approval uh, by the FDA and the uh, United Kingdom and the provisional approvement by the European Union uh, are data which are shorter. So four to eight weeks after vaccination, uh, efficiency had been measured and side effects had been measured. This means we are quite sure that short-term uh, these new vaccines and mainly the mRNA-based vaccines uh, from BioNTech, Pfizer and Moderna uh, are effective by producing um, um, antibodies, neutralizing antibodies against 
the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And we are also sure short-term the side effects are uh, not threatening. So there are local side effects, redness on the injection uh, side and some else, but not really severe side effects. However, what we not know is how long immunogenicity will last. So we have no long-term data about effectiveness. And on the other hand side, some side effects we know from other vaccines are long-term side effects. And I only want to bring uh, the narcolepsia story for an influenza vaccine during the swine flu pandemic into mind. And these long-term effects uh, are missing in the data at the moment. So I think it's an effective and a safe uh, vaccine, which is available now, but it's a kind of um, life um, investigation. So we have uh, to sample information uh, about side effects and effectiveness data for the next months and years. So that's very important to state that people have to weigh the risks between, you know, they need a vaccination, the risk of coronavirus is real. For many people, it brings a very significant disease, especially for elderly people. But at the same time, the long-term data is being accumulated. But from everything that we know, at this point, I think of several million people in the States, I think up to 4 million people have been vaccinated. Uh, the safety data looks pretty good. Uh, I, I'm sure it's a safe vaccine. As I said, you can never exclude long-term side effects totally, but I'm sure it will not be so important. And you have to have in mind the risk to die from COVID-19 is remarkable. It's worldwide uh, something between 0.5 to 3%. And for the elderly, for patients above 65 years of age, for the at-risk patients with comorbidities like diabetes, like obesity, like arterial hypertension, it can go up to 20%. And if you balance this, the risk of side effects of the vaccine are much less than the risk of the disease itself. And obviously, people who are younger, but who might be in contact with more elderly relatives or friends or friends or relatives of their friends. So it's a chain reaction. So perhaps it, it's important to underscore that this vaccination is very relevant, not only for people who are elderly, who are at increased really high risk of drying, but for the younger people who are healthy and who might tolerate the disease itself. Uh, on their own is uh, pretty easily. It's still important from a public health perspective and their family's perspective. I absolutely agree. It's a, a psychological issue. So if you are young and your risk uh, for dying is very low, nevertheless, you could infect a relative or, or someone else who is elderly and who is comorbid. And I, I think if you have to think you are responsible for someone's death because you are not vaccinated and you are uh, SARS-CoV-2 infected, 
that that's not a good feeling and if we can avoid this we should do so at this point you know in the states several million uh, people have been vaccinated mostly with mrna vaccine two of them are approved at this point in germany and in europe european community in general campaign started what do we hear about the clinical aspects of the vaccination campaign so far it first started in the united kingdom about three to four weeks ago and now in the rest of the european union it started yesterday so what you can say is from the data coming in from the uk and what we have seen in germany uh, and uh, other european countries yesterday acute side effects are very very rare so nobody died uh, due to the vaccination procedure and in between the first hours after vaccination so this is safe and this is very important because if it shows to be safe and i'm sure this is true the willingness of the population to be vaccinated will increase willingness of the population is a big problem for example in germany because the number of enemies against vaccination procedure not only for COVID-19 but also for other diseases is remarkable and from a political point of view we have to convince these people that it makes sense and it's a kind of social responsibility to be vaccinated. Considering the increase or relatively high but very vocal uh, minority of the people but it's still a you know a high number of people what do you think is responsible for this kind of a trend upward trend to people being hesitant about vaccination or outright refusing the vaccines because the educational level in germany and in europe uh, in general is very high so people are certainly aware of uh, a lot of information from credible scientific sources it's not logical it's ideological and uh, we we have different ideologies which drive enemy chip against vaccination so uh, some people coming from a more uh, nature focused uh, philosophy thing while well, the organism has to learn to cover such kind of diseases and it's a you know, let me say a darwinistic process if you do or do not but I, I think if someone in the family dies and as more you see people dying with COVID-19 as more you will be convinced uh, that that this is a good thing to be vaccinated and the second one the second issue made mainly in Germany but also in the South European countries is if you are young and you are only in contact with younger people and younger people do not die you do not see the risk uh, of COVID-19 and the high mortality uh, we are faced with in the hospitals and that's but clearly younger people play large role in disseminating the virus they travel around they move around and i mean that's part of the reason why there is so much arguments in the states whether the schools should be closed or open and at what age kids are safely you know not, not for their own safety so much as to transmitting it into their multi-generational households often so i think um, nevertheless perhaps it's time for the younger people to really think more 
you know, about the world at large rather than uh, only their own health. You know, that's that's perhaps the public message. Also for the younger people, yeah, for the younger people, if we do want to come back to normality, if we want to get, let me say, a little bit pathetic, if you want, uh, if we want to get our life back, uh, we we have to avoid transmission of the virus, and still prevention measures, and the most effective preventive measure is vaccination, is the only way uh, to avoid spread of the virus. Right. So you know, global COVID situation affects everyone, and the sooner people get vaccinated, the more likely you get to this proverbial herd immunity, which is the term that's so much used and often abused. One of the major problems for the future with regard to this herd immunity is the length of protection after vaccination. And this is something which not have uh, been figured out at the moment. So it could be that this is only nine months or only a year, and then you need revaccination, or maybe uh, the two different types of vaccines which will be available soon, the adenovector virus-driven vaccine and the mRNA vaccine. The mRNA vaccine may be more effective in the beginning and the adenovirus vector-driven vaccine may be for longer time effective. They had have to be combined. These are data we need in the near future. What could be responsible for this differential uh, protection length and methods? Does, does that relate to the sort of humoral and cellular immunity arms that are being affected by these vaccines? Uh, what, what is known to date? What do we hear from your colleagues and from your research? So from my own research, the mRNA-based vaccines are better to stimulate the humoral immune response and mainly the production of neutralizing antibodies. And the adenovirus uh, vector-driven vaccine is better in stimulating T memory cell responses. So the, the cellular arm of the response. Uh, T memory cells are responsible for the long-term efficiency of a vaccine antibodies are responsible for the short-term efficiency and this is a little bit what we see so short-term the mRNA-based vaccines are better than the adenovirus uh, vector but the T-cell response is much better with the latter one. Uh, very interesting. So it, it's quite possible that people will need to be immunized with what is available at this time, which are mRNA-based vaccines, and then re-immunized with adenoviral-based vaccines in the future for the longer-term protection. Uh, a, a very nice paper had been published in the New England Journal of Medicine on uh, the Christmas Day, demonstrating that even with only one shot of the mRNA vaccine, the antibody response is very good, but I'm sure the long-term response will be not as good. And this makes it more likely that mRNA first adenovirus vector driven second could be a very good schedule for vaccination 
to combine the short and long-term advantages of both uh, vaccination strategies. Well, that, 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 that's, I think, a very important point. But um, as, as the virus mutates, you know, right now there's a lot of discussion about the new mutant virus uh, discovered in the UK, but, you know, it's probably spread around the world by now. What do you think is the likelihood that the vaccines uh, will have to be modified and people need re-immunized? Or the feeling right now in the scientific community that vaccines will continue to work around various mutations because so many millions of people around the world were, you know, infected and nevertheless the virus has not shown significant change in its activity? Yeah, first, some words uh, due to the mutation which mainly uh, occurred in uh, the southeast part of Great Britain. Um, in, in other European countries, and I know data from Denmark, the Netherlands, Belgium, and now out Germany, we see these mutants. They are also uh, in continental Europe. Uh, however, they did not spread in continental Europe. And one of the main reasons for this may be that under lockdown conditions, these mutants do not have a chance to overcome uh, the classical SARS-CoV-2 virus strains. Uh, in the UK, when these mutants had appeared, uh, they were out of lockdown. So this could have been um, uh, forced the uh, spread of the mutant. What we know about the mutant at the moment is it may be better transmissible, but it's not more virulent, not more pathogenic. And it could be that it is less pathogenic. This is something which always occurs with virus mutants. They lose by mutation to mutation. They lose uh, violence and pathogenicity and they are better adapted to the host to us which is something which would be a good message for the whole pandemic with regard to the vaccine this is a kind of Nobel prize question so most of the vaccines or all vaccines are focused on the, the SARS-CoV-2 binding protein and uh, mainly on the spike protein from SARS-CoV-2. This is a big molecule uh, which has a lot of different epitopes. And at the moment, these mutations did not affect all the epitopes. So it's more likely that the vaccine still will work. However, it could be less effective. If you look how mRNA vaccines have been developed. If there are strong mutants, which are the most important ones for the future, you could adapt the mRNA vaccine to the new kind of mutant, but you will lose time. So this will need another three months to four months to come up with a new vaccine, which is easy with the mRNA technology. Uh, which is uh, more focused on the current mutant. 
Well, that's that, that's very important. Just to make sure that you know the fact that this uh, a lot of discussions about the new mutations, whether they spread out of lockdown during the lockdown, but nevertheless, it does not. It should not distract people from the main message that if the vaccine is available to people, they should really get vaccinated uh, because of the safety data is is quite good. That's what we know. In your view. Uh, Professor Welter, how long will it take to get more long-term safety data, including with regards to the very rare, you know, one in a million kind of side effects that you that you mentioned uh, that happened in influenza vaccine, like narcolepsy? Uh, what would be the observation period that uh, scientists really need to, you know, to to go back? to the past and look at the people who were vaccinated to assess those kind of risks? This is an ongoing process. So you could be more sure about the safety after six to nine months after the first uh, round of vaccination. So for the people who had been involved into clinical studies, this will be in April or May and then for those vaccinated in the US, in the UK, it will be around summertime. But nevertheless, the, the process of reporting uh, will last longer and will last for years. One crucial point is how good reporting of side effects is. And this is a little bit related to the reporting system and the IT technology used in different countries. And this is also an ongoing development. So I, I think uh, mainly if younger people are vaccinated, uh, app-based systems to report uh, side effects could be a solution to get, get more data in. As more is reported as uh, better uh, our evidence is. Yet another reason for people who are not in immediate significant danger of uh, severe or fatal coronavirus disease still to be vaccinated because clearly the world is in it altogether, at least most of the world. From a short-term safety perspective, uh, you know, chest and breathing discomfort is one of the expected short-term effects after vaccinations in general, uh, including COVID-19 vaccination. So from a personal perspective, I participated in a clinical trial of uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine developed by Janssen Pharmaceuticals. So it's adenovirus 26-based uh, vaccine, um, uh, if, if, if I'm correct, but human adenoviral-based vaccines. And after, uh, you know, injection, I assume that I got actually a vaccine and not a placebo because I had some overnight uh, mild fever and joint pains. But the, one of the first symptoms I had, which was very unusual for me, was kind of a chest discomfort, almost like not difficulty breathing, but a clear discomfort in the lungs. And mild breathing discomfort is a common occurrence in vaccines why lungs react so fast to vaccines and what is the mechanisms of uh, potential mechanism of such reactions? It's not um, in general a side effect of vaccination, but it's very specific for SARS-CoV-2. And if you look to the symptoms of COVID-19, the three main ones are uh, fatigue, fever, 
and chest tightness. And what you describe is typically chest tightness, which normally is a plural, a plural reaction uh, to the virus. And it seems to be that we see the same uh, with the vaccine, but it's normally one to three days. You feel a little bit like a cold, getting a cold, and then it disappears without uh, any further symptomatic. I see. So, so it's specifically related as a plural reaction to the COVID-19 vaccine. So people shouldn't be concerned if they feel something like that. It will pass away. It's important that we as physicians and as responsible physicians for the vaccination explain this uh, before uh, uh, administering the vaccine to the patients to make sure they accept it. Very important point, very important point. Actually, your audio, interestingly, improved significantly. I, I don't know if, if you use a different mic. That's good, that's good, that's very interesting. You already mentioned that the antibody titers, you know, they might decrease with time, so that's why the cellular immunity is very important. And by now, data accumulates that people who recovered from COVID-19 coronavirus infections, you know, their antibodies titers really, you know, decrease. Does that mean that their immunity potentially becomes less and less? Or, or as long as they have some antibodies, you know, it could be effective? What is known to date? And it's clearly a life, you know, changing situation. We, we just micro had a paper accepted in immunity, one of the major journals in the immunological field. And uh, we, we demonstrated that about, you know, about 50% of the patients after COVID-19, the antibody level disappeared after three months. However, this does not mean that you are not immunogenic against uh, the virus because in the later phase, the T-cell response drives the immunogenicity and not the antibody level. Uh, we, we do not know this for SARS-CoV-2 in details, but for example, we know it for other viral infections. And I will give you the uh, example of hepatitis uh, B, where uh, when the T-cell memory is no more measurable, normally after five years, there is still uh, a protection for the next five years. So good T-cell response means long-term uh, immunity and is independent from the antibody response. So people could have some hope that even if their antibody titer is diminishing, nevertheless, there might be a residual cellular arm T-cell immunity that could protect them at least from the severe infection. Which I think that segues into important question that many people are asking. If somebody had coronavirus, clinical coronavirus disease, does it make sense for them to be vaccinated? if and when vaccine becomes available to them? And do you think it's safe for people who had clinical coronavirus infection to be vaccinated with one of the approved vaccines? Again, this is a Nobel Prize question. So what we did in Germany, we did not recommend uh, to vaccine the ones which had confirmed COVID-19 disease uh, in the beginning, but it could be 
uh, clever to do this later on uh, because then the immunogenicity may come down. So whether it's safe, well, that, that's a difficult to answer question. There could be a, an overreaction by a second uh, contact with the virus, but this has not been shown yet in any way. And I'm sure uh, there are a lot of uh, patients which suffered from COVID-19, but the disease had never been confirmed and they will be vaccinated now because an antibody measurement is not a baseline condition uh, for giving the vaccine. And so we will get data about these hyperinflammatory response at second contact. I, I'm not so threatened. I think maybe in very rare, rare cases, this could occur, but it's not a, it's not a main finding. So if somebody is, you know, had a clinical infection, check for antibodies, the antibodies decreased after, I don't know, six months after the infection, A, from the conversation, they should not necessarily be very concerned that they have no immunity. What we know so far is this, they probably do a clinical immunity to coronavirus. But on the other hand, if they take a vaccine that is not a contraindication, previous clinical infection, you know, especially as the time goes by. That's true. So I, I would say if you are out of the first wave of COVID-19, so the March, April, May uh, patients, uh, they can be revaccinated and should go for revaccination in spring. For those out of the second wave, it will last longer, the protective effect of the disease will last longer and maybe uh, the, the second shot uh, should be given in the beginning of autumn next year. That's, I think that, that that's good that you suggested the timeline as an example because that helps to visualize how that relates to the natural infection versus the potential infection of vaccine because vaccine could generate a stronger immune response with neutralizing antibodies and T cells trained to neutralize the virus than actually the natural infection, which generates the whole wave of antibodies, not all of which are neutralizing. Yes, it's a little bit related to the severity of the disease. So in our manuscript, we, we've demonstrated that if you are uh, ventilated on intensive care and very severely ill, the antibody response is much better and much more neutralizing antibodies than in uh, patients with mild to moderate disease. Uh, so it's, it's related to the disease severity. Do you think, what can we infer from that, that the T cell response and T cell uh, um, protection might also differ between people who had a severe clinical course of COVID-19 versus people who had mild or asymptomatic infection? Yeah, that, that's not so easy to say. So for neutralizing antibodies, it's a typical finding. As more contact to the virus you had, as more antibody response is measurable, for T cells, this could be different. And even in mild disease, in our follow-up measurements, we find a very good T cell response. So this is not so much dependent 
on viral load and disease severity. So that's a very interesting point because then it relates to the potential long-term protection, which is T-cell immunity driven. So people with mild infection might in fact have a robust T-cell based protection, which is a longer term. Well, altogether, if you look worldwide and uh, the, the pandemic started in February, March, so uh, there are very few secondary infections which is a signal that the long-term immunity is not so bad. And most of those with secondary infections, there is a different type of the virus, or these are older people with uh, a, less, uh, a, a less pronounced uh, immune system. So that's uh, senescence of the immune system. And this makes it more important also for these patients, as I said before, to be vaccinated after a given time. Well, that's very important. Thank you very much for underscoring this point. Professor Welter, one of your particular expertise in research is participation in clinical trials in general. And of course, coronavirus situation has brought the clinical trials on the forefront of everybody's mind. What are the main challenges in conducting clinical trials today? And perhaps, you know, if uh, you could discuss any of the COVID-19 related clinical trials as an example, but it would be important to know your view in general. Corona SARS-2 is a new virus. And when the pandemic started, more or less, we did not know anything about the virus. And if you look to the first observational studies and also the clinical trials, a lot of different substances have been given in parallel, which makes it very difficult to interpret the results of uh, these studies. And it lasted weeks and months to find a kind of standard um, treatment, which is anticoagulants, uh, dexamethasone in the more severely ill patients, and antivirals like antibodies or remdesivir in the not so severely ill uh, patients. And you need a good standard uh, in addition to the investigational track uh, to get good results. And this is something which had been very, very difficult in, in the beginning of the COVID pandemic and a lot of substances did fail in clinical studies, not because they are not effective, but because the study design was not appropriate. Clearly, you know, the strength of science directly related to the control that you are using, and that's something that has not been done due to uh, different processes and perhaps the urgency of the situation where clinical physicians felt the necessity to actually help with what they potentially can help. Yeah, that's a problem if you if you only have the hydroxychloroquine uh, story in mind. So this was uh, a, a drug uh, some uh, physicians and not only physicians, also the American president was in favor uh, in the beginning and it was used very widely. But today we know uh, the, the efficiency was low and the side effects were big and, and a lot of uh, very critical side effects like uh, arrhythmia and, and other kinds of heart failure. But 
for a long time, hydroxychloroquine had been used more or less in every patient and is part of the clinical studies also for other substances. And this is a confounder uh, which biases uh, the results of the studies. I think that's a perfect illustration of the difficulty of really using the correct controls on clinical trials, as well as the significant pressure on physicians on the front line, you know, who have to take a clinical decision in treating the patients. And that adds to the pressure to use substances that have not been proven in treatment. But, you know, speaking of ICU and mechanical ventilation, which is, again, one of your very significant expertise area, how does therapies for patients who are in the ICU, coronavirus disease patient, changed between the first wave in the spring and what we have now? Are there any changes? Because a lot of experience accumulated. What uh, do you say, you know, at least for the German experience? There's more controversy than solved uh, uh, problems. So more questions than answers. And what, what we learned is COVID-19 is not a classical RDS, mainly not in the beginning phase. It's a disease which primarily affects endothelial cells and uh, thrombosis formation in the microvasculature is one of the main pathological uh, factors. Later on, it's more and more becoming a classical RDS. And this changes the mode of ventilation we use in intensive care unit. And what maybe the main experience we had in the beginning is if you turn a patient around uh, into prone position, uh, the improvement in gas exchange is dramatic. And early prone position, also in patients who are not mechanically ventilated, had become a standard of care. And on the other hand side, uh, the pressures we use normally in RDS, mainly the post and expiratory pressures, are a little bit lower in COVID uh, than in classical RDS. So altogether, a more distinct ventilation pattern had been figured out for COVID-19 patients. Do we know you know, different countries might approach treatments and they do approach treatments differently for coronavirus patients, especially perhaps the most severely affected patients. Uh, what does Germany do differently from other countries, perhaps North America, maybe other European countries, if there are such differences? Is there any illustration that you perhaps uh, could give to illustrate various approaches? I, I think there are no differences in treatment and also not in preventive measures. However, there are huge differences in healthcare resources. And one of the major advantages of Germany and uh, one of the reasons why mortality is much lower in Germany than, for example, in the US or in the UK is much better healthcare resources. So we have more hospital beds, we have more ICU beds. It's more likely to be admitted to a hospital or ICU bed in a short time in Germany than in every other country. So it's more a healthcare system than a treatment problem. Perhaps it also relates that uh, uh, people in Germany have a more uniform access to healthcare compared to the countries like in the United States, for example. 
and that's uh, that's that's been a significant problem in in the United States. Uh, the different access to healthcare and different living conditions and people living in various areas. New York is a prime example of that. The differences in coronavirus cases uh, in Manhattan, in you know, in Brooklyn, Bronx have been very vastly different as well as outcomes due to the socioeconomic reasons, primarily. That's a I, I agree. Point. So in Germany, it's a, a public uh, finance healthcare system, healthcare for everybody and not dependent on your income and your wellness. So that, that's, that's different. And this makes it more uh, convenient and better in terms of outcomes in a country like Germany. That's socioeconomic impact is, is, is hugely important, clearly, and uh, COVID-19 situation has underscored that. What do we know about a longer term damage to lung of patients who recovered from COVID-19, especially who underwent uh, you know, severe, perhaps mechanical ventilation? There is increasing data of so-called long-hold COVID-19. Uh, there is a discussion of pulmonary fibrosis. What do we know, at least from a lung's perspective, of the long-term situation after COVID-19 recovery? Long-term long COVID is something which has to be studied more in detail uh, very thoroughly. And what we know is in the minority of the patients, we have substantial organ damage, including lung fibrosis, but also chronic myocarditis. Uh, but in most of the patients, we have a symptom complex, which is very unspecific and which is known as chronic fatigue. And as far as the rehabilitation after recovering from the COVID from lung, are there any specific programs being developed? Or what is the view uh, from you as a lung specialist in that? Yeah, there, there are special programs which should include muscle force, muscle performance, but also respiratory muscles and breathing patterns. And a very important issue is the neurocognitive deficit of long-term COVID patients, so you need neurocognitive and psychological uh, training. For, for people in, development, uh, in developing countries and maybe where there is not a resource-rich environment, um, is there anything they can do perhaps to advise their relative, maybe their elder relative who recovered from COVID-19, any exercises they could do to improve their lung function? Yeah, that, that's a very difficult question. So uh, I think what we have seen is if you are too early on exercise after COVID, there could be a kind of relapse of the disease. So to be back in normal life uh, should be very carefully done and not to be too early uh, started. Well, that's an important point to really take time to recover fully. Professor Welter, well, thank you very much. That's been a fascinating conversation. Is there any question that I should have asked but I didn't ask? Is there anything you'd like to share with our viewers, you know, whether coronavirus-related or not, from your enormous wisdom, perspective, and knowledge? No, I think you asked everything what is important, and I uh, could uh, made a lot of statements. So my final statement is, there will be a time after COVID-19, a post-COVID time, and we should 
be optimistic, uh, to look into the future. So it's a real development how fast vaccines had come into the market that shows what societies in our time are able to do. And this makes me very optimistic. That's a great message of optimism. We're very grateful to you from that. Professor Welter, thank you so much for speaking to us. And we hope to revert to you in the future as we gain more knowledge about coronavirus vaccines, but also perhaps to have an opportunity to discuss lung disease in general, because you have this tremendous research, clinical and administrative leadership in respiratory diseases. So it's very important to share with viewers around the world. Thank you very much. Anton, thank you very much. Uh, great pleasure to do this and all my best for you and for everybody worldwide and greetings to the US. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you found this conversation useful, please share it with someone who could benefit from it too. And visit diagnosticdetectives.com to learn more and sign up for our free member updates on hot topics from world's leading medical experts. See you next time.